chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. All right, before I pray and get started, uh, I'm Joe Kim. I'm a church planter in Philadelphia, and I was friends with Andrew Smith for a while. He is a dear, dear person. And uh, I will miss him. And he's not in the Philadelphia area anymore, so I will miss him greatly. I'm sure you guys do too. And when I heard that you need a speaker for today, um, of course I was going to say yes, right? But I, I will say this. There's some tragedy that our church plant has recently gone through. Two weeks ago at the Super Bowl, one of our members, the praise team leader, 27 years old, he died from a heart attack. And, uh, you know, when you're the leader, you're always the last to grieve. And it's because you're too busy trying to help everyone else navigate through this terrible kind of situation, right? And so it's, it's, the funeral was just last night, and, and I had to, I had to uh, give the message there. And then after everything was over, I was so glad on one hand that everyone was getting, I think, the necessary closure to move forward. Right? You can't move on from something like that. But to move forward, I think, is something that the Lord wants for all of us. Right, But on the other hand, if you could keep me in prayer, because I think this week is going to be my turn to process what happened and how do we move forward with this. Right, And so, again, keep Hope Philly in prayer. And if you can keep me in prayer as well, I think I, I would much, much appreciate that. Right, All right, let me pray. And uh, let's get started. Father, thank you for being our God. You care for us. And surely if the Lord is for us, who can be against? And I pray, Lord, that you would help us here by opening our hearts and opening our ears that we may hear what you have to say. That I did my best to put together uh, this message, but at the end of the day, it's not human beings' thoughts that are going to be of much help lastingly, but it really is the word of God that cuts through everything that needs to cut through so that our hearts can be restored, renewed, and, 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 and sanctified 
And Lord, your Holy Spirit has the power to do that. So may your Spirit uh, use what we have here, that our worship matters to you, Lord. Our, the songs that we sing, the sermons that we, we hear, the, 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 the liturgy that we recite, Father, it has an effect. And we pray, Lord, that you, it is your Spirit that is making it effective. And so we pray, Lord, that in the end, our hearts will be even more oriented towards you, that we would walk out of here saying, our God is good, and we will be a light to the world and a blessing. Bless and do not curse. Help us to follow that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. What do we got here? Okay. So... When I went to seminary, it's like 10 years ago now, but my first year, I remember taking my very first midterm exam. And I remember everything about it, right? So the class was called Introduction to the New Testament and was taught by this person, Professor Steve Taylor. So the midterm had 60-something questions on it, and it had to be taken online at a educational site called Blackboard, right? So you had to go to the site and then take the test. It was called Blackboard, right? Now, the reason that I remember that midterm so vividly is because when I finished and I went to check my test results, I ended up getting a D minus, right? And, and when I saw that grade, my heart dropped. There went all aspirations to go on to get a PhD, right? This is graduate school. You can't be getting Ds. But then, you know, I, I started thinking about this, though. I studied so hard for that exam. I know I might have missed a few here and there, but a D minus, that just didn't sound right. So afterwards, what I did was I ended up emailing Steve Taylor, and this is what I said. Hello, Dr. Taylor. My name is Joe Kim. I just checked my letter grade on Blackboard, and it says that I have a D minus. But I scored 90 points out of 102.5. Is this letter grade correct? Please let me know in him, Joe Kim, right? Now, later that same day, he actually replied back. It was the same day. It was, it was amazing. Now, it turned out that the Blackboard system that Dr. Taylor used only categorizes people by their last names. So, the pro so the, when the grades were posted, the system has trouble distinguishing between people who have the same last name. All right? Now, the problem here is that my seminary was over 50% Asian. There were eight people in my class with the same last name, Kim, just in my class alone. So, so this is what he said. Joe, thank you for pointing this out. Your real grade is A minus. As per the note I sent out to all the others in the class named Kim, you actually received the letter grade of another Kim. So thanks for pointing this out. Unfortunately, your colleague who made the 40 and had your A minus will now be very sad. Sorry for the heart failure, Steve. <clears throat> okay, so this is what happened. Someone ended up getting the grade that I had worked for. But in the end, that grade was taken away from him and instead given back to me. All right, 
Here's the analogy, right? There's a point to this. Something very similar happens to us in our salvation. So the story of Jesus is that he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. But in doing so, he did this all in a way that all the blessings he earned for himself are instead given to us. And any punishment that we might have earned for ourselves is now placed on him. But unlike in my story, where I got, I got my A back, and he, he, the story with Jesus is permanent and irrevocable. Theologians call this the great exchange, right? So what happens is Jesus' blessings that he earned are given to you. You see that? And what happens is once you have them, they can never be taken away. It's permanent and irrevocable. That's the great exchange, right? Now, the question that I always get when I hear this is, why does Jesus do this for us, right? That actually keeps coming up because it's so foreign, isn't it? The concept of grace to people is still very foreign, right? So what, what's the answer? Well, the answer is grace. God does this because of grace. So here's our definition of grace. This is the working definition that we use at our church. Grace is taking blessings and benefits that are normally reserved for just friends and family and giving them to strangers and even enemies in hope that those strangers and enemies will become themselves friends and family. All right, let me re read that one more time. Grace is taking blessings and benefits that are normally reserved for just friends and family and then giving them to strangers and even enemies in hopes that those strangers and enemies will themselves become friends and family. So what does that mean for us? Because if this is true, what it means is that by grace, we are completely accepted by God no matter what. All right, one more time. Let's put this in differently. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Here, here, another way to put that is, guys, hell is off the table if you are in Christ. So what's the purpose of trying to be good? That, that's the question I keep getting, right? Here, here, see, here, let, let, let me explain it this way. If the gospel is true and you put your faith in it, you are now completely accepted by God no matter what. And there is no condemnation that can ever come your way. No legitimate condemnation, at least, right? So therefore, whatever Jesus did, he made it so that you are so completely loved by God no matter what. And there is now nothing you can never do. This is, I got this from an old book uh, by Philip Yancey, right? But this is, I never forgot this. There is now nothing you can ever do to make God love you any more than he already does. But on the other hand, there's nothing you can ever do to make God love you any less. And this is all because of the great exchange for what Jesus had done, right? Okay, so what did Jesus do? Right, I'm gonna give you at least two things. He does a lot of things. This does a lot of things for us. I'm just gonna give you two. Number one, Jesus' work removes all of our sins. Right? Okay, so Psalm 103, verse 12, it's one of the ones, the first ones that when I became a Christian, I committed to memory. As far as the east is to the west, so you have removed our transgressions from us. Now, you got to remember, 
In the ancient world, they didn't think the world was round, right? They thought the world was. So in a round world, the problem is east will always meet west if you keep going, right? But in a flat world, east never meets west. The two shall never meet. That's the illustration that the Bible is given when it says this verse. That's number one, your sins. Whatever Jesus did, he made it so that our sins are completely separated from us. And then number two, Jesus' work permanently unites us to God, right? One more time, this is another verse, Romans 8, 39, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. So what happens is that in our salvation, there's a separation, our sins are separated as far as these is to the West, and there's a union, right? You are united to Christ. You see, in other words, in the Jewish mindset, God is the meaning of life and the reason to exist. God is where your best life is. It is life at its highest potency. So, but to cut yourself off from God, at least in their minds, was to cut yourself off from everything, everything that makes life good and worth living. It's a very Old Testament, it's a good Old Testament way of thinking. It's very biblical, right? What this passage then is saying is that if God is truly your highest good, being cut off from God will never, ever happen to you because you are permanently united to God and all the benefits therein, therefore, can never be taken away from you ever. The Bible says that those who put their faith in Christ Jesus have the right to be called children of God, right? You are a child of God adopted into his family, and that can never be taken away from you. No one will ever say, get away from the family. No one, no one has the right to say that, right? And God, 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 that God's love for your, uh, excuse me, your familyhood, your adoption is permanent and irrevocable. All right, now, and why does this happen? It's because of grace, right? So here's what this means. So a second guy I'm going to bring into this, Tim Keller, right? Tim Keller says this, until you understand and accept this idea that you are completely loved no matter what, then any love or obedience that you try to offer up to God will always be some kind of way to try to earn his favor, right? See that? And that's never going to do. See, even if you try to do good things, those good things will be some way to try to twist God's arm into blessing you or accepting you. See that? So you have to start out with this, that hell is completely off the table. There has to be a way to motivate Christians to stop being bad and start being good without threatening them you know, to try to do it. And you, you know why that's important? There's so many people. Here, here, let me see. Let, let me explain this. How do you use this to help people change? Because this is where the rubber meets the road, right? So when I tell people this, right, that the great exchange is real, what I keep hearing back is this. Joe, if what you're saying is true and God loves me regardless of what I do and there's nothing I can do to ever lose his love and affection and favor and all these things, well, then what is my motivation for being a good person and living a good life? Now, first off, I want to point out that if you think that, then that's sad because that means your chief motivation for being a good person was the fear of punishment. 
You see that? The reason you're trying to be good is you're just afraid of being punished by God. That there has to be a better way to motivate people in order to stop doing bad and start doing good, right? So secondly, I think this totally makes sense that so many people keep asking this question because from the moment we're born, we're all taught that we have to earn our keep, that no one's ever gonna give you anything for free. But with God, it's different because the great exchange is offered to us by grace. It's free, it's a gift, right? Okay, now let's go on. On the other hand, there is another hand. What Christianity is saying is that there is a way to change people, to get them to stop being bad and start being good without using guilt, without using shame, or without bullying them into it with your authority, right? So God does not guilt trip people into being good. Every time you read through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and it looks like that's what he's doing, it never works. God's making a point in his Bible. You cannot guilt trip people into lasting goodness, nor does he shame people into trying to do the right thing. That doesn't last. Nor, contrary to Christianity's reputation, I think in this country nowadays, God does not use authoritarian power to bully people into getting his way. Instead, what does he do? What is the way? And the answer is grace. The answer is grace. Here, let, let, let me give you this example. All right, so anyone remember Monica Lewinsky back in the Bill Clinton days? Remember that? You know, when I, my Hope Philly is, is all young people, so they don't even know who Bill Clinton is. <laughs> but uh, I remember, um, so if you don't know, Monica Lewinsky uh, was a White House intern who had an affair with President Clinton when he was in office, right? It happened some 20-something years ago. And when that happened, the internet just started, right? It just started to arise. So whenever a scandal like this happens, like even a high-level affair like this, usually what happens is that story gets in the papers, and then it goes on for about a few weeks, but if you try to duck, at it, duck it out a little bit, just wait out the story. Eventually, the story will, will move on, right? You see that? The story will fizzle out. The journalist will move on to something else. But the problem with the internet is that the internet amplifies stories, doesn't it? It takes something, and it's like a bullhorn, and everyone, it, you click it, you click it, and it keeps going. And the problem with the internet is once it gets on there, it ain't ever leaving, is it? <laughs> right? so, so with the Monica Lewinsky story, it was one of the first high-level scandals that was put on the internet, and it was talked about 24-7. It was on everyone's mind everywhere. And so for Monica Lewinsky, this was utterly humiliating. And like I think about a few years back, she did, she did a TED Talk where she was explaining this. And she was explaining that the shame that would have been localized and temporary is now everywhere because it's the internet, right? And so the shame and humiliation that she was feeling was now magnified exponentially. That's that bullhorn effect that, that, that uh, the internet has. Now, why does this happen, right? Why does this happen that in this society, I think in this society, in Western society, Eastern society even more, it's because everyone has in the back of their minds that the way that you keep people in line, the way that you get them to stop being bad, is that you make sure certain activities are so shameful that if anyone ever found out, you would be so mortified, that, and then people would start using this shame as a deterrent to stop people from doing bad things, right? And what the Bible is going to tell us 
is that that way of doing things doesn't work. It shaming people just causes more problems. And so what happens is it might look like it's working for a while, but in the end, shame actually destroys people. So therefore, don't try to use guilt to try to get people to be sanctified. Are you seeing how I'm putting this together, right? Sanctification, you can't achieve that through guilt, and you can't achieve that through shame, right? Um, instead, and lastly, don't use authoritarian power, right? Don't bully people. See, the Gospels were written during the Roman Empire occupation. And the Gospel writers would look at the Roman Empire. So how does Rome get its way? It uses violent power. Rome is the law. Rome is going to try to force people to do what it wants them to. So for example, how do you get people to pay their taxes? You threaten them with violence. That's how you do it. How do you get people to do what you want them to do? You threaten them with military might, and they will get in line really quick. But what the Gospels are saying Contrary to Rome is that there is a way to get people in line without using guilt, without using shame, and without using authoritarian power. Instead, we use grace, right? So there are two things in Christianity um, that whenever I say it, it tends to go in people's one ear and out the other, right? The first thing is people, people think that, that sin is frivolous, right? So we, we tell people, it's like, yeah, you, you got to stop sinning you got to stop sinning. Sin is serious. It will mess you up. But unfortunately, people are like, yeah, 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 right? I know, I know, right? Um, that's the first thing. The second thing that is so frivolous, I think, way too often in Christianity is that grace is powerful. Grace is powerful. And I think the reason that we don't show enough of it is because we, we, we think, okay, that's how I got saved. That's great but that tends to go in one ear out the other. So if you really want to see change, there's something in our hearts that says, let's do it the way the world does it, because these are tried and true methods in the world. But the Bible says tried and true, but in the context of eternity, this doesn't work. It doesn't sanctify people. So what's the way to help people to be sanctified from sin? And the answer is, it's God's grace. Okay, now, okay, so here, here's, Here's what's going on. Don't get me wrong. God does discipline people. Now, I know I just told you that God does not use guilt and shame or whatnot to get people in line. In fact, you sh but you should be worried if God doesn't discipline you because God always disciplines the ones he loves, right? See that? But here's the difference. Here's the difference. There are so many churches that are going to tell you you got to be balanced between grace and discipline. Give people grace, but then discipline people because you don't want to let them get away with stuff. So therefore, be balanced. And I say, baloney. That, that's absolutely wrong. Instead, okay, don't get me wrong. You do have to discipline people, right? But the key is not balance. That's what I'm saying is baloney, right? Don't, don't. Don't misunderstand. So instead, here, this is what I want to say to you. You need to realize that when push comes to shove, one of those things will always have priority over the other. If for you, is it discipline or is it grace, right? Because whatever you prioritize, that thing that you prioritize will always color and temper how you administer the other. So when, which one is it for you? Does your discipline temper and even limit your grace? 
or does your grace characterize and even limit your discipline? You see, you see where this is going, right? You see that, and we know what the biblical answer is because how does God do it? When God disciplines you, he doesn't do it out of like, you know, I'm, I'm wrath, right? Because I told you, hell is off the table. Instead, he does it because he loves you as his children, right? That's a very, very big difference. So when it comes to teaching people to do right and not wrong, I am telling you, you must prioritize grace. When people fail, show them grace that is in line with the gospel. You may use discipline to sometimes motivate dis discipline to, excuse me, what did I say here? You may sometimes use discipline to motivate people to do the right thing, but it's the gospel that tempers it. Let me say that again. It's the gospel that tempers discipline. It should characterize discipline, that even when you exercise discipline, the people eventually should realize, oh, this was because it was grace to us. That's Christian discipline. So when you prioritize the grace of the gospel, how you administer discipline is very different than someone who is merely balanced. And let me close with this. So, in the Monica Lewinsky TED Talk that I just referenced, she said this, right? So she said, we have the right to say anything on social media that we want to. She's trying to defend the First Amendment, right? But compassion and empathy will always temper what we actually say. So if you prioritize compassion and empathy, that will be able to help shape what comes out of your mouth or what you type on a keyboard. That's basically what she's saying. Right? In the same way, this is Joe Kim again, right? In the same way, God's grace in his gospel will order and temper all discipline and convictions that, will help, that he uses to help us spiritually grow. Prioritize grace because that really should characterize Christianity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the grace that we have in the great exchange, that Jesus really did live the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died, and he did this because of your grace. And so I pray, Lord, that as grace has saved us, grace through faith in Christ alone, help us then to be characterized by this same grace, the God who is love showed his enemies grace. Help us, Lord, then to do the same as children of God in this world and the world that desperately is in need to be able to see a picture of God's grace. Help us to do that well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.